0: Happy Monday, my friends. This is Amy Lee San Juan, and I'd like to welcome you back to another super informative and super terrific episode of Cisco Champion Radio. Today, we're talking about IWO, or InterSite Workload Optimizer. So if you're interested in learning more about the solution, get comfortable and join us for the next 40 minutes. And just a reminder, you can always learn more about any of the topics we cover here at Cisco Champion Radio simply by clicking on the link provided in the abstract below. All right, let's get to meeting our amazing light up of Cisco champion hosts and our rock star Cisco expert. Sean, welcome back. For those who didn't catch the episode on Cisco Cisco Data Intelligence Platform, can you share who you are and what you do at Cisco?
1: Yeah, thank you so much and glad to be back uh, so soon. (laughs) Um, (laughs) My my name is Sean McKeown and I am a solutions solutions architect uh, here at Cisco. Uh, I've been here for about 10 years and in that time I have uh, focused in the data center space. I've been on the the worldwide data center team for that time and uh, in a a role where I get a chance to talk to customers uh, and Present to them, learn from them, uh, enable our field, uh, our field sales teams, uh, and also work uh, quite closely with our engineering and, and marketing teams on the on the back end uh, to help uh, shape and focus the the solutions we offer from the data center side of things. Uh, most recently, uh, with Intersight Workload Optimizer.
0: Great. All right, now on to our Cisco champion host, GJ, we'll start with you.
2: Hi, my name is Gert-Jan de Boer, or GJ in short. I'm a CTO for a Dutch value added reseller uh, called Azoo. And I focus uh, primarily on networking and security and a little data center on the side.
0: All right, Joe, tell us about yourself.
3: Howdy y'all, Joe Hughes, based out of Austin, Texas. Uh, Currently a solutions architect over at Veeam Software as a Cisco partner. Um, Primarily, I'm just a long time data center geek uh, and interested in all things from hardware to software and workloads.
0: All right, Mark, my friend, last but not least. I'm
4: Mark Siebring. I'm a, um, a consultant for Devoteam, which is a European consulting company. And they call me a DevOps expert in Agile IT. I like to automate stuff. I like to build data centers, campus networks, backbones, whatever. And um, yeah, you can find me on GitHub, uh, Devoteam, and then NetCI CD. It's something I'm working on to make sure that you can automate everything.
0: Okay. Sean, kicking it back to you. Can you set us up with a bit more background and context around what we're talking about today? How did we get to the I/O solution as it is offered?
1: Absolutely, absolutely. And and for that, I'm going to actually go back uh, ten years, about to the time uh, I started here at Cisco, which is uh, really at the birth of UCS of the Unified Computing System uh, that we we uh, sell in our data center portfolio. Um, Unified computing system, uh, the, the, co- the crux of UCS uh, was the ability to essentially uh, decouple management of the physical item, the, the physical server, uh, from the server itself and abstract uh, all of the nuts and bolts of configuration uh, out of the server uh, and into a separate control plane. Um, now, at the time that UCS launched, excuse me, the time UCS launched, that was, uh, that control plane was essentially uh, embedded in the switch, in the Fabric Interconnect. And that was the location of the management uh, for the entire domain. Uh, And over time, and and that proved wildly successful, you know, uh, Cisco jumped into the data center, space, I mean, in the server space and just uh, really took off. Uh, In that time, though, we saw a whole bunch of other changes happening uh, in IT, not the least of which was the heavy move toward cloud. And we saw that trend and saw the power of uh, the the public cloud and the software-as-a-service model. Uh, and the idea of Intersight was born. Uh, probably, we launched it about three years ago, but obviously it, it took some <laughs> it took some doing, some conceiving prior to that. So the idea behind Intersight uh, was to effectively take that control plane and move it up into the cloud and uh, deliver it as a service. Uh, And there are all kinds of advantages in doing that, uh, not the least of which is centralization of configuration and management, uh, the massive uh, scale available uh, in uh, the public cloud. Uh, Intersight is is, uh, managing now half a million Devices. So, you know, turning on a, uh, another dozen, uh, you know, on your project or whatever is not going to hurt it. Um, and uh, it provides a, a central location for uh, security, for, uh, you know, data center control and uh, visibility across your entire state wherever it resides and so that launched about 3 years ago and we have been over that time uh, incrementally growing it as not just a <clears throat> pardon me not just a a cloud uh, delivered service for managing UCS servers uh, certainly that but also growing it as a, a truly a, a cloud operating platform uh, where we're able to go beyond uh, UCS servers and HX servers uh, and in direct management of the of the server hardware, and grow it into something that allows customers to manage uh, uh, virtual machines, manage storage, uh, even deploy Kubernetes clusters is a new capability we're we're going to be launching soon. So uh, that evolution occurred uh, more recently, and in about the same time frame as a partnership we developed with a company called Turbonomic. Uh, Turbonomics a startup that's been around for also about a decade, Uh, and they have this this really uh, amazing technology uh, for uh, application resource management. We'll get into a bit about what exactly that is, Uh, but the idea is basically to provide the workloads, provide the applications the resources they need uh, when they need them without providing them more than they need. Um, and so we've been for the last three years we've been OEMing uh, a, a their their core product their um, standalone product that uh, customers run on premises uh, called Turbonomic we we called it Cisco Workload Optimization Manager um, but uh, in the last few months what we've uh, launched with with Intersight is essentially that same underlying engine, that same Turbonomic Application Resource Management engine. Uh, but we, we Cisco, have taken that code and uh, wrapped it, integrated it, and embedded it directly into Intersight. Uh, and now it is uh, essentially now just, uh, I, I won't say just, but it is now a, uh, a feature set of Intersight as opposed to being... Uh, a separate standalone OEM product. Uh, And that means it is delivered as a service, has the same uh, RBAC, uh, uh, security, um, uh, scalability, which is key, uh, as the rest of Intersight. And we're super excited about it. We launched that in, I think it was uh, the very last day of November uh, of 2020. So
3: that's where we are. Little history lesson. So after moving out of the traditional um infrastructure space, you know, of starting with UCS and and well, I, I guess actually the first workloads that were in InterSight were really uh HX and then UCS kind of got rolled in uh after the fact. But then having, you know, coverage for standalone servers, storage servers, um, even things like partner storage arrays and, and all of that covered as the the traditional IT infrastructure that's within data centers. Now that everybody is considering or, or actively moving workloads to both public cloud and um you know cloud native applications and and more containers, um, what benefits do customers get that have uh, legacy infrastructure you know or the traditional infrastructure that are also moving to cloud and moving to Kubernetes? What is what does IWO bring them uh, along with Intersight in that instance?
1: That's a great question, Joe. Thanks, and and I love the Kubernetes shirt by the way. It's a good theme for <laughs> today. <laughs> For, the, for those uh, uh, on the podcast, you can't see that, but uh, trust me. Uh, yeah, so so the idea with IWO with workload optimization uh, within Intersight, uh, is that we you have a you have a fundamental problem in IT uh, that every every IT organization every t- IT operations team uh, uh, struggles with, and that is essentially to deliver performant applications. Uh, to end users, at the lowest possible cost. Uh, and on-premises, the lowest possible cost essentially means uh, highly utilizing, utilizing as best as possible the, the sunk cost of capital expenditures. So basically driving up utilization on your servers and your storage and your network and so forth as high as possible to get the the best bang for the buck. But doing so safely, doing so in a way that does not hurt performance. In fact, doing so in a way that assures performance. Uh, in the public cloud, it's essentially the same goal, except that in the public cloud, the the infrastructure is, for all intents and purposes, infinite. Right? The, you can't hurt Amazon or Azure. Um, So the goal there is not to consume uh, the resources and and maximize that. It's impossible. Uh, The goal there is literally to spend as little, uh, you know, dollars per month as possible, right? Uh, And so wherever the workload resides, uh, that's what Iowa delivers. Iowa really, really goes after that core prime directive, if you will, uh, uh, you know, to borrow a phrase um, of IT, make sure applications are getting the resources they need when they need them. uh, And then making sure the cost slash optimization, uh, cost is minimized or optimization is maximized depending on on where you're running.
4: Um, And that's it. So does that help when you have to make a choice between uh, reserved resources and on-demand resources and spot resources in cloud providers?
1: Absolutely. Yeah, that's a, that's a great question. So, so uh, just to lay the land there um, in the public cloud, um, when most, most consumption, at least when, when folks start in the public cloud, they consume it um, using the the standard on-demand pricing. Uh, which is pay by the hour. You you fire up a a VM instance and you get charged for the hour you have it turned on. And then if you turn it off, you stop getting charged. Um, And that's that's kind of the the default model in the public cloud. Uh, There is a, a different consumption option in both Azure and AWS, uh, I assume and it's true and in, in, in some of the other clouds as well um, and that is uh, to uh, purchase a reserved instance and a reserved instance is essentially uh, an instance you prepay for on a one year two year three year or so on uh, basis uh, and so you're you're basically reserving those resources uh, to for yourself for your for your own needs and getting a significant Discount uh, if you were to calculate it on a on an hourly basis. In doing so, the trick, of course, is that if you don't consume that reserved instance, uh, then you're paying for something uh, that's just sitting there, right? That's just it's just uh, burning a hole in your pocket. Um, and so, what we see our customers do quite regularly is, you know, they 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 look at those two consumption models. Um, and then they try to find a way to manage their workloads within, within those two models uh, in, the, in the best way possible um, and invariably struggle. Um, the, the, if, you, if you think about the cloud services, they've got hundreds of different templates for uh, virtual machines, right? So uh, T3 Nano M5X Large, you know, uh, uh, my 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 friend Ovet always says, you know, like the T3 gluten free, and the uh, you, know, you can't you can't keep up, right? They're 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 they create new ones every day, um, and so there's so there's a few hundred of those. They all have different pricing. They all have different uh, uh, capabilities, like different uh, resources available. Some come with some storage. Some have GPUs in them. I mean, it's just it's crazy. Uh, and then you have a whole different pricing scheme for those exact same things uh, in, in a reserved instance instance scenario. So customers look at that and kind of take two approaches. One, they'll either they'll either build a, a very complex spreadsheet where they import the pricing for both of those um, and then they they look around at their their workloads and they say, okay, well these seem static, so we're going to buy reserved instances for them. Um, these are more dynamic. we'll buy we'll buy uh, on demand for those. Um, and we'll try to manage what we own in this uh, spreadsheet format, try to keep the pricing up to date, try to factor in our discounts and, and all of that. Or they say, that's a mess. <laughs> um, we're just gonna buy everything with a reserved instance and we're gonna go small, medium and large and, and that's it. Well, both of those approaches end up essentially failing for, for most customers. The, the first one is just so complex and things change so frequently. You know, you, 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 you have a, a simple example is you'll, you'll have a, an Oracle database that needs, you know, eight gigs of, uh, of memory. Uh, so you buy a reserved instance with eight gigs of memory. And then a month later, the DBA team comes back and says, okay, we, you know, we actually need 12 gigs of memory. We uh, had a new project come online uh, and it's going to consume more memory. Well, guess what? Uh, you know, the, the instance you bought doesn't fit anymore. Now you got to go buy another one. Um, and now you have this, this old instance, that's just, you know, consuming money, right? So what do you do with that? You have a hole to fill, what do you fill it with? And it just creates this cascading problem.
4: So, so Intersite intersite helps you navigate that space.
1: Yeah. So, so, you know, the, you, you have this, you have this, uh, problem where you basically multiply by hundreds of maybe thousands of workloads and, and you, you can't keep up with that. The other, the other model, the the kind of small, medium, large model. Uh, that's by default, you are almost always going to be mismatching your workload uh, to fit it into the small, medium, or large uh, bucket, and therefore you're leaving money on the table there, right? So either way, uh, it's a it's a problem. And what workload optimizer does, uh, uh, you know, it, to Mark's question is is essentially looks across that. Updates itself in real time, sees what the workloads actually require to perform well, uh, and then provides actions. The, the The whole thrust of workload optimizer is to make decisions, not just not just give you visibility. Sure, it does that. Not just you know, uh, you know have a nice dashboard to to do some troubleshooting. Sure, it does that. But to make decisions and provide those actions, tell precisely what to do. Uh, to best consume reserved instances you already own, uh, on-demand instances that are available for purchase, and to tell you also which RIs you should buy uh, over and above the ones you already own and what to put in them. And when things change to to to, to keep track of that. Right?
4: So how does it do that? Do you use AI? Is that uh, just regular stuff? Is it something people now do themselves is it something they can do they try they try like yeah you know trying to have a human
1: keep track of that is 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 just it, i I would argue it's beyond human scale in any reasonably sized environment if you have 10 VMs okay uh, but you get to hundreds of VMs that's a that's a essentially impossible problem and what Iwo does uh, it, and this is true whether it's public cloud or whether it's uh, on premises resources it speaks the native API of uh, the, the, the underlying uh, infrastructure management system. So if it's uh, on-prem, it speaks to uh, your, your hypervisor, speaks to vCenter. If it's uh, you know, on-prem and you've got pure storage or NetApp storage or EMC storage, it speaks directly to those storage arrays in their native API. Uh, it speaks to your Kubernetes cluster uh, it speaks to uh, if you have an application performance management tool like uh, like appd like Cisco, excuse me Cisco's appd, um, it'll talk to appd in the public cloud it talks to the native Azure or AWS uh, public API which has a extremely rich, Uh, uh, you know, uh, a set of of data available uh, for consumption. So it speaks all those APIs. It reaches out, makes API calls to ingest information, telemetry, uh, metadata from those uh, those underlying environments, those underlying pieces of infrastructure, uh, pulls all of that in, in real time, all the time, uh, and then analyzes it. Uh, and yes it is I, I would argue a form of AI uh, it, it, the underlying um, engine the underlying algorithm uh, is based on uh, economics economic theory uh, basically based on the laws of the well understood fairly well understood laws of supply and demand um, so all of the data that it learns about uh, that it collects is it uses to stitch together a view of the world, uh, a view of your infrastructure, uh, that is based on consumers and suppliers. Uh, you know, so you think of a physical host. A physical host is a supplier uh, to two virtual machines or two containers. Uh, a supplier of uh, CPU, a supplier of memory, a supplier of network storage, and so forth. Um, those 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 are supply side so you know he's it's, it's basically selling those resources if you, if you want to think of it that way um, and that's how the that's how the algorithm thinks uh, and then those a VM is a consumer uh, it consumes those resources It's shopping for those resources looking for the lowest quote unquote price um, to 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 lay its workload down um, but then the VM turns around and sells those resources those same resources to the, the workload sells it maybe to a container that's running inside the VM. So if, if it's if there's no container, sells it to the application, um, and and all all the way up and down the line, we call that the supply chain, um, and that that algorithm is constantly calculating uh, the, the the current demand and the available supply and making incremental decisions based on on its knowledge of those things uh to to you know move you toward move your environment toward a a desired state where uh, performance is assured and cost is minimized
2: so it sounds it sounds like you're playing tetris with workloads <laughs>
1: it's funny you say that uh cuz uh, cuz the uh, <laughs> The very first so I I I started learning about all this um you know when we started our partnership with with Turbonomic about three years ago. And that was like that was like literally I made one of the first slides I made when I was just started trying to put it together for myself and present it back to, to folks inside of Cisco was a Tetris slide. Um uh, the I I was uh I was also sort of uh corrected on that from um uh, uh from, from the turbonomic folks because it's it's in it's a it's an over simplified model. Um, it isn't just um, you know moving uh, Tetris bricks around and trying to find uh, a slot to fit them in. Uh, it, it it does do that. I mean, in other words, it does do VM placement uh, and and uh, container pod placement. It looks for the best place to put them um, and tells you you should move them if they're not in the best place for them. Uh, so so it, it does do that, but it also it'll resize the shape of the, of the, uh, of those little bricks in Tetris, right? Uh, to, to, to try to continue the analogy. So uh, if the brick isn't the right size for the workload it contains, it'll right size it, right? Um, if there aren't enough bricks to, and you need to scale out for to meet demand, uh, it, it can do that. If the if the container that the brick is i am butchering the, the analogy. This is this is why they told me not to use it. Uh, but 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 if the if the storage container that it sits in isn't isn't correct, uh, it'll it'll tell you what to do with that. Um, uh, it and it looks it looks way past uh, simple metrics like um, uh, CPU utilization, memory utilization. Certainly looks at those, uh, but goes into. Um, all, I, I think there's like 60 different metrics it, it actually uh, accounts for in, in the analysis things like uh, storage IOPS network bandwidth uh, ready queue wait state um, I, I, you know uh, application performance metrics If you if, if you have an APM it'll it'll actually pull in data on application transaction performance so it'll know if an individual transaction within an application is, uh, a, a, is experiencing high latency, and if it is, whether that latency problem is a result of an infrastructure issue, uh, which it could deal with, uh, or if it's an application that you issue, which it would say, you know, okay, that's the, the realm of the APM, like, like AppDeep.
4: So basically, it makes your head scale. I mean, doing all this by memory is kind of impossible. It makes your head scale. Uh, yeah, does it do yeah, that better than uh, the tooling they are using now?
1: You know, humans are great, but we're slow and we don't scale, right? Uh, we're, we're, there's only so much you can do with the human brain, and if you if you think about the the kind of traditional model that that most organizations follow. Um, and there's good reasons why, why this is, is the traditional model. Um, it's one where essentially we, we, we buy a monitoring tool, uh, we deploy it, uh, we set up a bunch of thresholds for metrics that are proxies for performance, but not actually measuring performance, right? So uh, memory utilization isn't mem- measuring application performance it's a, it's a kind of a crude proxy for that. We know that if memory utilization goes high and stays high, that there might be a problem with application performance, but might not, uh, high, high memory utilization on a, on a database is good. You, you, you want that, um, same for CPU utilization. And so, on. so, so we, you know, as humans, we, we try, we set thresholds for those, those kinds of metrics, um, that generate an alert when the when the thresholds crossed, and then we promptly ignore those alerts, right? <laughs> right. I mean, uh, you know, we we, we were joking about this the other day. Like, how, how many alerts do you think a typical IT organization ignores? What percentage do they ignore on a on a daily basis? Uh, probably in the you know eighty ninety percent range. The, the, it, I, I, I I've seen it before. We've we've got customers that will buy a fancy monitoring solution turn it on, generate a bunch of alerts. It creates all this noise and they can't handle it. And then they go to another vendor to buy a software solution to suppress those alerts. Think about that for a second. Like you're paying one company to generate them and another company to to suppress. I mean, it doesn't, it's, it's kind of a broken model, right? And this gets to your, your, your point, Mark, which is that basically the more of those alerts we generate the more noise that generates for the human brain, right like humans can't keep up with with that scale, uh, and so more noise or, or sorry more alerts is just more more noise for AI for an algorithm like uh, what we have with with uh, internet workload optimizer, and with the scale we have with the cloud to, to, to run it more data uh, actually leads to better decisions. The, the, the algorithm loves more data. It it, it, it absorbs it and uh, it actually gets smarter, uh, unlike a human when, when, when
4: provided all that data. So that leads to different decisions then like yeah. load balancing, but more cramming stuff together. So you can turn off systems or, uh, and become greener or, how does right, that work? Right.
1: Yeah, no. So, so like that's a great example. Like, like. When you when you don't have uh, a, something a, situa- you know, a, a solution like this, you're left with approximating uh, uh, you know something that seems kind of performance related. So y- you're left with kind of more of a crude approach. And and a great example would be you've got um, ten physical hosts, um, and you say, okay, I. I I can't, you know, I can't, as a human, I can't figure out the exact right decision here for all these workloads that are running on this host. So I'm just gonna strive to make sure that CPU utilization is balanced across all 10 hosts. Um, it's not, you know, in any way perfect, but it's at least a start, right? Uh, and I may even set up some automation tools to uh, to try to strive for that goal. But But think about that goal, that goal, the, is balance and balance is not performance. Balance is just balance. you know uh, sometimes it's performance, sometimes it's not. Um, and e- even 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 if it's uh, leading even if you've got enough buffer above your your threshold to so so that everything's running at 50% utilization and, and you're not suffering a, a performance problem, um, now you're underutilized. right And so uh, uh, an approach like that will never tell you, the right decision. The right decision in that situation may be to take three three of those servers and the workloads that are running on them, move those workloads to the other seven in this example, um, and then repurpose those three, because right, because you can you know you, you can move those three the workloads on those three servers to the other seven safely, uh, still assure performance and so forth. And performance, it, it, you know, as again, balance and performance aren't the same thing. A, per, a performant environment might be lumpy. Uh, performance, uh, a performance environment might have um, you know, 90% memory utilization on one host and 25% CPU utilization on, a, on another. That might be the right, most optimal uh, deployment of your
3: resources, uh, but it's very difficult for a human to, to know that. So part of the problem we've had with with traditional infrastructure, too, and and management and monitoring both is the fact that, you know, back in the day, especially with virtualization, we got to the point of just trying to look at the virtualized shell that everything was running in, right? We're just looking at the VM, we're looking at the resources of that VM, we quit inspecting into that really to find out what is the actual application. So unless you were doing end user monitoring type of stuff where you were actually doing, you know, tests against the application to see what that performance was, we were just moving around things to say, Ooh, I don't like this being orange. I want it green. So let me shuffle these things around over here. And yes, either everything is green or it's at least, you know, at the same level of, of orange at 60% across all my hosts, right? We were just trying to shuffle and give ourselves the most amount of headroom before we had all those alerts start filling our inboxes with things like that. Um, whereas, yeah, to your point, you know, having that lumpy environment might be perfectly fine where you have some hosts that are loaded with um, VMs or, or you know, containers and other nodes that are pretty static in their performance, right? They They draw in all the resources that they need and they just stay there. You know, that's perfectly fine for your database applications where you want them to have all of their available resources, just ingest them as soon as they boot up and they have whatever they need when they actually start running queries or actually have uh, have, you know, traffic passing to them. And you don't want those workloads to be shuffling around because then we're doing a bunch of different things with all of the shared memory and, and, you know, potentially performance hits, even if it's just minor, it gives not consistent performance to those performance to those applications because we're shuffling them around because we're only looking at that uh, virtual machine level, right? Not the actual application itself. So even with things like that, you know, giving the the additional intelligence that we're getting about the application with things like IWO, or especially if you take it a step further and start plugging in things like App Dynamics. What happens at that point if we still want to make environmental changes, like yes, either shutting down hosts or or moving things to cloud or to containers? What is what does I will give us for that?
1: Great question. And uh, there, there's there's two pieces to that. Um, the the first is you already noted is that we can see past the black box of the hypervisor or the 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 boundary of the container pod uh, with. Uh, uh, an integration like we have with AppD uh, to go beyond beyond the, the the kind of external knowledge of the workload and get to the internal knowledge, like actually get down to understanding uh, that there is a web server running inside that container, that it's got a JVM and when what the heap allocation is to that JVM and so forth, right? So so we, we can we can bust through that barrier, um, but uh, to to your to you know to the larger uh, question there the uh, and i'm sorry sorry what was the oh um the, so what do you do if, if we're if if you need to make a change essentially to the environment uh to to that question uh, i will provide a uh, a planning engine um and it, it's actually it's actually the same <laughs> underlying engine so it's, it's, it's all based on the same thing um the 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 the, the kind of cleverness with the planning module uh, is that it allows you to simulate a change. So if you, if you think of that underlying economic engine, it's basically uh, the known suppliers and known consumers all thrown in together in this uh, big commodities trading marketplace. Right, like I, I imagine, like the one of those old uh, videos of like the Chicago Mercantile Exchange where everybody's just shouting at each other, buy, sell, right? But that's that's effectively what it is, right? In in real time with real resources, but the the software allows you uh, in a in a uh, sort of sandbox mode to say, okay, uh, let's take the real world and let's uh, modify it, let's let's uh, adjust the supply or adjust the demand, or both, um, and see what results would pop out if we made those changes. So if I decommissioned five hosts, um, changing, of course, the supply, what does that do to my environment? What decisions would the the software make um, and what changes would I have to make as a result uh, to account for that change in supply? What if I deployed 20 new uh, virtual machines of different sizes? Again, could could I absorb that with the existing infrastructure, uh, or would I have to move things around? Would I have to write so you know what's the or would I have to purchase uh, some additional capacity, right, storage, server, whatever? Um, or if I took these workloads that are sitting here uh, running on prem and I wanted to move them to the public cloud, um, what would that cost me? If I just did a lift and shift as is, you know, same, same size, same everything. Um, or what would it cost me if I right-sized in the process, right? What, what, what if I um, took the, the software's uh, recommendations and changed the size of the, uh, of a given workload to better fit uh, its needs? What would that cost me? And what if I brought my license, al- licenses for a SQL server along with me, like if I, rather than purchasing them from the cloud. You know how much would that save me? So,
4: so you can become uh, proactive.
1: Absolutely. So so you can run these 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 kind of what if scenarios, uh, and, and it's and you know as much as you like, and and they're using current data, the what if scenarios with your own customized adjustments. Uh, what if I change X, Y, or Z? Right, and and then you, and you get actions again. You get you get specific actions that that fall out. Uh, you know to to tell you where to go and what to do. Actions, by the way, in the in the main, uh, one thing I didn't know: those actions, in most cases, those actions are automatable. Uh, so, so in in the in the normal day to day operations of the of the software, um, if you have uh, you can you can, and it's always opt in; it'll never do it unless you you opt in. Uh, but you can turn on uh, the the actions for um, placement. So, if you're using VCenter for V motions. Um, it will actually make the moves it's telling you you should do manually if you allow it. Um, And you can constrain the degree to which it it acts on things uh, based on uh, a a very robust uh, grouping and policy mechanism. So you can say, allow vMotions for just this cluster uh, and for just my uh, test and dev uh, Windows VMs. And only allow that to happen during my change window of midnight to 4 a.m. <laughs> right, you can be really prescriptive about w- when you let it uh, uh, start acting for you.
2: So how does this work with uh, dynamic workloads? So for example, uh, one of my customers, uh, they have a huge increase in sales uh, over the Christmas period. So they have uh, six or seven times higher uh, sales. Uh, and the workloads, they grow uh, with that every year. So that's a completely different pattern than regular use.
1: Sure. Yeah. Uh, so so for first of all, the software uh, in in addition to looking at current demand, uh, looks at historical demand, um, and it looks at what changes would be made to keep uh, y- your environment. Uh, to provide the resources in the, in the, essentially the 95th percentile. So, so 95% of the time is getting the resources it needs, right? Spikes are okay. Spikes, you know, uh, spiking to hundred percent is okay. Uh, You know, for most applications, it's, it's um, in fact, it's a good use of, of, of resources. It's letting the hardware do what it's supposed to. You can adjust that by the way, if you want to be in the, if you want to be really conservative and be in the 99th percentile, you can adjust that. That's fine. Um, so, it looks at current and it looks at historical, and it can see, um, you know, kind of uh, daily or weekly patterns and, and the like. Um, in, in the specific example you gave, where it's an annual spike, right, um, and, and, and a spike that grows each year, um, that might be a scenario where uh, you, you take a bit more manual um, intervention. Uh, by creating a, a policy that that says, "Hey, I know this is coming. You know, I'm I I, I, I don't need uh, I don't need anybody to tell me that Christmas is busy, <laughs> right?" Um, and so you can actually reserve uh, resources, and the engine will will sort of work around those resources and say, uh, I, "I'm going to act as if they're already consumed
4: and make sure that they're available when the time comes." And you can plan that over time. So did you say mm-hmm. only do this in the de- December time frame?
1: Right, right. Tons of tons of power uh, in the in the engine, and uh, you know, just more to come. We're gonna we're gonna be adding uh, integration, you know, additional integrations into more parts of the infrastructure. Uh, we're gonna integrate it more tightly into Intersight itself. Um, it, it, you're gonna. It, it's just I'm I'm super excited about the possibilities there. I mean, you think about the power of InterSite you know on its own uh, and its data lake and its integration with tac and and recommendation engines and and the the uh, security engine you know, all the back end stuff that intersight brings to the table and the potential there for what we can do now that we have, have iwo uh, also running out of that same cloud uh, it's it's a, it's a it's a good looking future i'm pretty excited for it
4: but what does the future look like i mean we're all going away from uh, VMs. My twenty-four-year-old colleagues uh, ask me, "Like, what's a VM?" And somebody else says, "Oh, it's a container with too much overhead." <laughs> uh, what about how that works with Kubernetes and containers? And does it? Yeah. Then do management yeah. of containers, or what? What do we expect there?
1: Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, it's funny. It's like you almost for for those that have grown up in the in the cloud native world public cloud containerized world you almost have to have like a, a birds and bees discussion about like physical hardware like th- you know that stuff runs somewhere right like there, there, there is there is a, a, a there there a physical there there but yeah uh I, I i'm just teasing the 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 um the software absolutely integrates uh with kubernetes um it uh, essentially uh speaks to kubernetes uh, uh through a, a uh, command uh, through an API from a container that runs inside the cluster. Um, it's it's like it's the one place everything we do is agentless. It's the one place uh, where if you squint, it sort of looks like an agent. Basically, you deploy uh, a a uh, container pod inside your Kubernetes cluster uh, that can speak to the, the Kubernetes controller um, and relay that information to. Uh, to the workload optimizer, but um, effectively uh, that allows us to, uh, you know, essentially enhance the behavior of uh, the Kubernetes scheduler. Excuse me, scheduler, the native Kubernetes scheduler. So, um, an example might be um, if you have if you have a new pod to deploy. Uh, in a Kubernetes cluster, uh, and it uh, it's got 10 containers in the pod and it has a certain amount of requirements and it's manifest for CPU memory and so forth. Um, uh, the Kubernetes scheduler takes a look at that, uh, looks at the resource request, looks around the cluster at the the nodes, and says, okay, where where who can satisfy this request? You know which node can satisfy this request? And if a node can satisfy it, that's where it goes. It doesn't really think any uh, more deeply than that. Um, if it can't be satisfied by any of the nodes in the cluster, then that pod sits and waits to be deployed. It's a pending pod problem. That's a nice bit of alliteration, I guess. That wasn't intentional, um, but <laughs> the pending pod problem is a real problem, um, and uh, the 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 Kubernetes uh, scheduler will not do anything about it. Um, it'll just wait, and it, that it'll wait even if. There are changes that could be made in the existing cluster uh, to move resources around and free, you know, you've got a bunch of fragmentation basically of resources. If you consolidated, uh, move, you know, pod from, you know, pod three from node five to node seven and so forth, you could free up enough potentially resources to, for that pending pod to be deployed. Kubernetes won't do that for you, um, but I will, I will look around and say, ah, uh here here are the three moves you need to make you know redeploy this pod there that one there and so forth now you got room to deploy your your pending pod uh so uh, go ahead and do that right that's just an example but there are there are lots of others like noisy neighbor issues that the kubernetes scheduler won't notice deal with uh i will will um and and so we already we already do all that today and we're going to uh, uh, add functionality in there as we go over time for uh, support for things like terraform and, and so forth so uh, yeah
4: pretty cool pretty good feature. i've got one last question a small one so sure. nice and cool you said it runs in the cloud what about running on-prem uh, or air gapped or whatever
1: yeah great question so um the it, and, and and this is a the answer to this is basically an interstate question and an iowa question combined so Today, uh, the default consumption model for Intersight itself is SaaS. Is running out of the cloud. You uh, connect and claim your devices uh, for, uh, directly to the cloud, and uh, we do that in a very secure uh, manner. We've got all all kinds of uh, security certifications, uh, FIPS compliance, PII compliant with the payment card industry, PC, uh, sorry PCI compliant, uh, and so forth. So. That's the default model, most customers use it, and it works really, really well. Intersight has two other consumption models though, and I'll try to go through quickly here. Uh, the, the first being uh, what we call the connected virtual appliance model, where uh, we, we essentially uh, wrap all of Intersight functionality into a VM that you deploy into an appliance, you deploy on-prem um, and that uh, you point all of your devices to that appliance that, that's on your premises. Uh, and then you have greater control over what leaves uh, from that appliance to the Intersight uh, backend proper. There's still a connection from that appliance to the Intersight backend that allows the appliance to update itself and uh, get, get updates from the mothership, so to speak. Uh, but you, have, you, you can uh, take much greater control over uh, whether, for example, information about IP addresses leaves your premises or, or things like that. Um, and then for the customer base that has an extreme security requirement of, of actual true air gap requirement where they can't uh, have the, the pods, their, their, anything connected to the, the internet at all, uh, we have what's called a private virtual appliance, which is essentially the same thing except it never talks to the mothership. You have to do all the manual updates yourself. So that's Intersight. Right now, today, Workload Optimizer is available in that SaaS consumption model, in that default consumption model. Uh, On our roadmap are those other two models, the connected and the private model.
0: All right. Well, this has been another great episode of Cisco Champion Radio. I want to thank all of you out there for listening in today. And a special thank you to our guest and Cisco Champion hosts for being a part of today's episode. Again, if you want to learn more about today's topic, just click on the link provided in the podcast description below. Uh, And just a reminder, you can subscribe to Cisco Champion Radio on your favorite streaming platform and receive alerts on our latest releases. So wherever you're listening to us, make sure to hit that subscribe or follow button now. I hope you all enjoyed today's episode. See you next Monday.